Welcome back to The Re-Education. The topic today is the upcoming midterm elections in America and why I'm rooting for divided government. My guest is Ben Jacobs, a prolific political reporter based in Washington, whose recent work has appeared in Vox and New York Magazine. I know there's a lot at stake in these midterm elections, from our economy, to the safety of our streets, to our personal freedoms, the future of health care, Social Security, Medicare. It's all important. But we'll have our differences. We'll have our difference of opinion. And that's what it's supposed to be. But there's something else at stake. Democracy itself. You just heard from President Joe Biden making the Democratic Party's closing argument for the midterm election. It can be summed up as follows. We know you are worried about crime and inflation, but democracy itself is on the ballot. A vote for a Republican is a vote against our national civic creed, our system of government, our core values. You know what? In the spirit of steel manning, I'm going to play a more articulate version of this argument. Here is MSNBC host Chris Hayes from last week spelling out the closing message from the Democrats. And so the pitch from Democrats is basically, if you care about democracy, if you care about having this feedback mechanism in which the people you elect are accountable to them, to you, you've got no choice but to vote for us. And that on its face sounds almost anti-democratic itself to say you don't have a choice. But it also happens to be true. Earlier in this segment, Chris Hayes played a recording from the Republican candidate for governor in Wisconsin, Tim Mickles, which the MSNBC host claimed that he was endorsing Republican rule in perpetuity for the Badger state. Listen for yourself. Just listen to the Trump-backed nominee in the Wisconsin governor's race, explicitly promising his supporters that he will enact one-party rule if he wins. It's all about the acronyms. It's all about LGBTQ and CRT and BLM. I just want to go to work, raise my family, go to church on Sunday, go to my kids' ball game, and the Democratic Party doesn't care about any of that. Republicans will never lose another election in Wisconsin after I'm elected governor. I should say, I don't think that is what Tim Mickles was saying. I think he was making a kind of boast that Republican rule in Wisconsin would be so popular with working families that no Democrats would win elections after the voters saw how great the GOP was. But that said, Chris Hayes, Joe Biden, Bill Maher, for example, and other Democrats have a partial point, I would say, because it's true that many Republicans on the ballot this year, though by no means all of them, repeat the lie from Donald Trump that the 2020 election was a fraud. They are what Democrats now call election de deniers. And I find that a slightly offensive formulation in that it makes it seem like denying the 2020 election is akin to pretending the Holocaust didn't happen. But leaving that aside, the line that's spouted by Donald Trump and his defenders about the last presidential election is a toxic lie. And on January 6th, that lie led a few thousand citizens to riot at the Capitol in a pathetic and doomed attempt to prevent the certification of the 2020 election. So I'm with the wine moms and the Twitter resistance to a point. I also reject the campaign to discredit the last presidential election. But that's as far as I go, because on Tuesday, I am hoping for a red wave. I'm rooting for divided government. My preference is for the Republican Party to win the House and the Senate. And here's the reason why. The Republicans are not the only party that is threatening our democracy in 2022. The Democrats are a danger to self-governance as well. But I want to urge caution that we not be distracted by the carnival barkers that we see in a Donald Trump or Lindsey Graham and we ignore those who are just as dangerous to democracy, like a, like a Ron DeSantis or a, a Brian Kemp or Brad Raffsenberger. It is not simply those who yell and scream that we need to be afraid of. It's those who are architecting the very overthrow of democracy that we are seeing play out across this country. And we know that in the state of Georgia, Brian Kemp has architected a bill that was promulgated across this country that is undermining elections as we speak, because it is making, dif making it difficult for voters to be able to cast their ballots and have those ballots counted. We just heard from Stacey Abrams. That's the Democratic candidate for governor in Georgia, speaking in September to MSNBC. And this needs a bit of unpacking, but I want to start off by just putting out here from the very beginning that what Stacey Abrams just said is sinister bullshit. Brian Kemp and Brad Raffelsberger 
are not, quote, architecting the very overthrowing of democracy across this country, whatever that word salad really means, as Abrams has said. Raffelsberger and Kemp helped save our democracy in 2020 when they stood up to the leader of their own party and sitting president Donald Trump to reject his scheme to overturn the results of the presidential election in Georgia. And just keep that in mind. And, you know, it gets even worse because Stacey Abrams never acknowledged that she lost a fair election in 2018 against Brian Kemp when he was the secretary of state and he was running for governor. Here she is after her loss in an interview with CNN. You said that, quote, democracy failed in Georgia. Uh, obviously, you're referring to some of the, the messy process of democracy, as you, as you called it, incompetence and mismanagement. But do you think that there was deliberate interference in the election? Yes. And I believe it began eight years ago with the systematic disenfranchisement of more than a million voters. It continued with the underfunding and disinvestment in polling places, in training, and in the management of the county delivery of services. And I think it had its pinnacle in this race. I want to point out something here. Trump and his supporters are not saying that they want to eliminate elections. They are instead saying they cannot trust elections because the Democrats cheat. I think they are wrong. But think about it. Isn't that also what Stacey Abrams is effectively saying? She is saying that there are structural reasons that have suppressed Democratic voters and therefore the 2018 election was not legitimate. Well, I think it, her argument is in some ways more palatable, and it's based on at least something that has historically been true if you go back long enough that there, of course, was voter suppression in this country's history, particularly in the South of, during Jim Crow after Reconstruction. But they're basically saying the same thing. You cannot trust the election because the other side cheated. Now, it turns out that in this particular case of the 2018 election, Stacey Abrams' claims of rampant voter suppression were tested. They were tested in a long-running legal challenge in the U.S. District Court. And at the end of September, an Obama-appointed judge, Steve Jones, rejected every claim brought by Abrams' organization fair fight action in that lawsuit. He found that the voting procedures in 2018 violated neither the Constitution nor the Voting Rights Act. What's worse is that the lawsuit itself enriched a close friend and the current campaign chairwoman for Stacey Abrams, Allegra Lawrence Hardy. Fair Fight Action, which is her nonprofit, paid nearly $10 million in legal fees to Allegra Lawrence Hardy's boutique law firm that was challenging in this case, which, by the way, ended up losing on all counts. Now, I anticipate a fair response on all of this. Stacey Abrams was not a sitting president when she contested the 2018 Georgia election. She is not the leader of the Democratic Party, and no one rioted at the Georgia State House to protest the certification of Brian Kemp's election in 2018. All of that is true. It's wrong to equate, to say that, that Trump's election denialism and Stacey Abrams' election denialism is the same or as dangerous because of, of all the reasons I just said. So I'm conceding all of that. And yet it's also true that just as too many Republicans have lined up behind Trump's election bullshit, it's also true that too many Democrats have lined up behind Stacey Abrams' election bullshit. Here is a Fox News montage of Kamala Harris, Seth Moulton, Cory Booker, and Pete Buttigieg in 2020, all saying that Stacey Abrams was cheated out of the governorship in 2018. Without voter suppression, Stacey Abrams would be the governor of Georgia. If this co country wasn't racist, Stacey Abrams would be governor. It was the voter suppression, particularly of African-American communities, that prevented us from having a governor, Stacey Abrams, right now. Yes. Stacey Abrams ought to be the governor of Georgia. When racially motivated voter suppression is permitted, we cannot truly say that we live in a democracy. You know, and it's not just Stacey Abrams complaining about the 2018 governor election. I mean, here's the obvious one. Hillary Clinton. And I've gone over this many times, so I'm not going to, like, dive deep back into Russiagate. 
But here she is in 2019. I believe he knows he's an illegitimate president. He knows. He knows that there were a bunch of different reasons why the election turned out the way it did. And I take responsibility for those parts of it that I should. But, Jane, it was like applying for a job and getting 66 million letters of uh, recommendation and losing to a corrupt human tornado. And so I know that he knows that this wasn't on the level. I don't know that we'll ever know everything that happened, but clearly we know a lot and are learning more every day, and history will probably sort it all out. Keep in mind, Hillary Clinton said all of this after special counsel Robert Mueller issued his report that found zero evidence of collusion between Donald Trump and Russia. Clinton's remarks are even worse considering that her campaign in 2016 fed the FBI garbage opposition research that was then used to keep open a meritless investigation into Trump and his associates that were in turn leaked to the press. So, because of Hillary Clinton's campaign, and also the very poor leadership, of course, of the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation was effectively politicized and weaponized against an elected president. That's also, by the way, a way of undermining our elections, a way of undermining our democracy. But my quarrel with the Democrats is not limited just to their own recent history of rejecting elections that they lose. They also do not trust the American people to think for themselves and sort falsehood from fact. They very much want social media companies to censor what they call disinformation or misinformation, or now we have a new one called malinformation. They don't trust the voters to know what is true. To illustrate this point, here is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez grilling Meta, formerly Facebook, the CEO, Mark Zuckerberg, on this in 2019. Do you see a potential problem here with a complete lack of fact-checking on political advertisements? Well, Congresswoman, I think lying is bad, and I think if you were to run an ad that had a lie, that would be bad. That's different from it being, uh, from it, from, for in our position, the right thing to do to prevent uh, your constituents or people in an election from seeing that you had lied. Um, so we can, so you won't take down lies or you will take down lies? I think it's just a pretty simple yes or no. Congresswoman, uh, in... I'm not talking about spin. I'm talking about actual in, Yes, disinformation. In, in a democracy, okay. I believe that people should be able to see for themselves what politicians that they may or may not vote for so are you saying won't take judge them their down. character for themselves. So you won't take, you may flag that it's wrong, but you won't take it down. Congresswoman, it's, uh, it, it depends on the context that it shows up, organic post, ads, okay. the, the treatment is... So we have the benefit of knowing what would eventually happen in the next three years after this clip, because the social media companies eventually did cave to pressure from the Democratic politicians and activists and began to take down posts or label posts that it believed were misinformation or disinformation. And as they became more trigger happy on this social media censorship, something we talked about in the Elon Musk episode, Freebird, legitimate information like the speculation that the coronavirus came from a lab leak in Wuhan or that vaccines would not prevent the transmission of COVID, or for that matter, the disastrous decision to throttle distribution of a New York Post story on Hunter Biden's laptop. All of that was legitimate, accurate, and true information, or at least totally fair in terms of the context of the debate. And it was censored in the name of fighting disinformation. I like to say this a lot, but censorship schemes like this always end up making us dumber. Anyway, this problem persists today within the Democratic Party, primarily. Under the Biden administration, we recently learned from The Intercept that the Department of Homeland Security has an ongoing relationship with social media companies aimed at preventing the spread of disinformation. Some of this was sort of known before, but this piece in The Intercept spelled out in more detail. Also this summer, Alex Berenson, a Substack writer and vaccine skeptic, who, by the way, not saying that everything this guy has said or written is correct. I want to make that very clear. He certainly has a right to say it. He's a serious journalist, former New York Times man. Anyway, he won a lawsuit challenging his permanent suspension from Twitter. And in the course of that lawsuit, he revealed that a senior White House advisor at the time named Andy Slavitt had recommended banning Berenson's account in conversations with Twitter executives. Think about that. That is a clear violation of First Amendment rights, even if you think you're doing it in the name of, you know, public health or public safety. I mean, throughout history, every censor has always justified 
their moves as a result of trying to protect the public from this or that or the other. Anyway, say what you will about the Republicans, and there is a lot to say about the Republicans, and we will get into that in plenty of future episodes. But for now, at least, the Republican Party does not agitate for more online censorship, at least among social media companies. I think it's fair to point out that Republicans, when they get into school boards, have tried to ban certain books that are from school libraries or to try to change things that would be required reading for middle school classes or things like that against that as well. But at least when it comes to the online town square of social media, it's really the Democrats that are agitating for more online censorship. And it's such an obvious challenge to free speech because a prerequisite for any meaningful democratic system is that people can freely debate the issues of the day. Finally, the Democratic Party in particular this year has squandered its credibility to make the argument that democracy is on the ballot. And this is because the Democrats boosted election deniers using their words. Such candidates in the primaries earlier this year in for everyone to see. And I suppose they reasoned that their candidates stood a better chance of running in a general election against the MAGA wing of the Republican Party. Anyway, here's how it works. In primaries all over the countries, Democratic Dark Money and the DCCC paid for ads boosting the MAGA candidates by attacking them as too close to Trump or too opposed to abortion. And again, that may have been an effective negative ad in a general election, but it is an in-kind donation to a candidate in a Republican primary because Donald Trump and the new decision overturning Roe v. Wade are popular among Republican primary voters. Here's an example of how this kind of thing works. It's from Pennsylvania earlier this year, where Democrats ran in the run-up to primary day an ad about Doug Mastriano, who is a monster in a lot of ways. He's a Trump super fan who went there for January 6th. And I would say I'm for the divided government. I want Republicans to control Congress. But if you are voting in Pennsylvania, vote against Doug Mastriano. But anyway, here is the ad that they ran at the very end of the primary to kind of get a sense of what I mean. This is Republican State Senator Doug Mastriano. He's the Republican who's ahead in the polls for governor. He wants to outlaw abortion. It's Mastriano who wrote the heartbeat bill in Pennsylvania, and he's one of Donald Trump's strongest supporters. He wants to end vote by mail, and he led the fight to audit the 2020 election. If Mastriano wins, it's a win for what Donald Trump stands for. Is that what we want in Pennsylvania? Here's another example. This is a local Michigan reporter explaining on CBS how the strategy worked against Peter Meyer in Grand Rapids. He was a one-term Republican member of the House, and he was one of, I think, 10 or a handful of Republican members of the House to actually support Trump's second and wholly warranted impeachment after January 6th. Peter Meyer is the kind of Republican that Democrats always say they wish the Republican Party had more of, and yet... They ran these ads against him, and basically that boosted his primary opponent, and he did end up losing. Here's the clip. Well, Democrats are actually pretty optimistic. Um, they ran, you know, we've seen this across the country, they ran these sort of soft attack ads against Gibbs that actually kind of boosted him in the GOP primary by reinforcing his support um, from Donald Trump. Um, so they obviously saw him as the more beatable candidate in a general election. So... It is fair to argue, politics ain't beanbag. This is life in the big city. Both parties will use the tools available to them to gain an advantage in any election, and primaries included. And, you know, you can say, oh, it's a dirty trick. But again, Republicans probably do the same thing. But if that's your view, you can't also then make the argument that we all have a civic duty to vote for the one party that still believes in elections, especially when that same party has boosted candidates it claims do not, whether they are Republicans or whether they're people like Stacey Abrams. So I would say a better way to think about these midterms is that under a unified government where Congress and the presidency are in the hands of the Democratic Party, the country has veered off track. When economists warned that more spending would cause a spike in inflation, Democrats and Joe Biden ignored the warnings and borrowed more and more to spend more and more. When the military warned that the Taliban would take over Afghanistan, Joe Biden ordered the chaotic and shameful withdrawal anyway. A protest vote against unified Democratic Party rule is an opportunity 
not only to introduce a check on the Biden administration in Congress, which is so necessary right now, but to send a signal to the ruling party to change course. It's one of the great benefits of the American system. Every two years, we the people get a chance to fire our representatives in Congress if we don't like the direction of the country. That is the essence of democracy, not, as Joe Biden has warned, its negation. Well, the re-education is very fortunate today to have a dear friend of mine and a former colleague when I was at the Daily Beast and a political reporter in Washington. You can read him in Vox.com and New York Magazine, who has been out on the trail for the midterms, my friend Ben Jacobs. How are you, Ben? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Bye. It's great. I've been meaning to have you on the show, and we want to do something kind of as we we are recording this on... November 3rd, which is a Thursday, and there's, what, four days before the midterm? Everybody yeah. wants the midterms? Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're, we're closing in. And Ben has, uh, you know, filed a fascinating dispatch for Vox.com from Elaine Luria, who is one of these military veterans in a kind of purple district in Virginia, who was on the January 6th committee, and is somebody who... You know, I you might want to say she's like a normie Democrat. She's was she the one who it was that was Allison Spamber, where she was like part of these people who were like, why are we talking about defunding the police? The Democrats should kind of try to get more in touch with people. And you went and sort of did a like, how are things looking from her district? Yeah. What did you find, Ben? They're they're, they're not looking great. I mean, Gloria has the core issue that it's the wrong district, wrong year. That this is, you know, shaping up to be a decent year for Republicans. How decent? depends but she's in a district that because redistricting got more republican and things 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 are looking looking tough for her in her district and you know part of what the piece focused on was sort of her service on the january 6th committee she's very passionate about the threats to american democracy you know and sort of what we saw in january 6th happening but it's not an issue that's particularly resonating in her district you know, at the time she has her Republican opponent is sort of very dodgy on the question that she says Joe Biden is the president, not did he legitimately win. And sort of there's, you know, that she's not by any means an election denier, but she's someone who is trying to sort of avoid doing anything to anyone, which in some way sort of, I think, infuriates Lori even more, you know, at least the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world, you know, had some basic integrity. It's but it's you know like it's more the fact she knows the fact that her opponent Kagan's knows better that it, it's the type of thing where you're saying the stuff and you know it's bullshit is is I think an even worse sin than being a total kook in the first place. Just avoiding the the topic, right? Just, just avoiding the topic and finding ways to sort of you know just saying you know and sort of dodging and dinking on the issue, which I think is that she's certainly not soaking it because it's a losing issue. This is a swing district. Like, you know, as we've seen in a lot of these sort of secretary of state races that the sort of peak election denier candidates running for secretary of state and running for election-based office are doing it or running far behind the ticket, that this is not popular because it's sort of her trying to make everybody happy the Republican. And it, it's, it seems to be working. She's doing just enough to avoid pissing off the hardcore MAGA base without coming across as a Trumpy MAGA person to uh, more moderate swing voters. Okay. And I want to sort of expand this out. 
But let's 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 start steel manning some of the January 6th stuff, because you and I agree that Biden won the election, that it's very dangerous to the republic that Donald Trump continues to stoke the fantasy that he won the election. And it's playing with fire. Mm-hmm. However, I can't hear I can't take too much of this from the Democrats. And here's why. A, they put millions and millions into the primary campaigns of election denier Republicans against more mainstream or, you know, normal Republicans. So that's the first point I want to make. So that was a decision that was clearly coordinated by the DCCC. And we saw that people like Peter Major, who is great, who actually voted to impeach Donald Trump, who was a Republican, he lost his primary in part because the Democrats were funding his opponent. Who was, a, who was a true kind of Trumpy election denier. So that's my first point. And my second point is, is that there's been a lot of election denial. It's not as, I'm not trying to equate it, but like when Stacey Abrams said that she was, that her election was stolen in 2018 by Brian Kemp, when, you know, President Biden gave that lunatic speech on Jim Crow or Jim Eagle, Jim Crow 2.0 about a Georgia election law, which he completely mischaracterized you know, and then not to mention the fact that Hillary Clinton, even though she did accept her defeat in 2016, would spend the next four years claiming that the, the election was stolen from her by a, a candidate, by, the, by Trump, who had colluded with the Russians. So I'm saying that everybody is kind of is, 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 is dipping their toe across this line. So it's very difficult for me to... Uh, take seriously this argument like, you know, vote like democracies, depending on it, when the Democrats are happy to play that card when it suits them. I, I, think, I think there's a lot more complicated stuff there that when you're you know, dealing with some of, you know, there's some of the sort of rhetoric about voting laws and election, and election stuff is there. But I mean, there is, you know, what we've seen, you know, in the aftermath of the 2020 election is certainly categorically different than anything that sort of happened before in American history, culminating with, you know, a farm demand storming the Capitol building. And, uh, you know, that there's obviously sort of griping. I mean, there's not, you know, Stacey Abrams didn't send the QAnon shaman to the state Capitol in, in Atlanta that, you know, obviously she's paying a price for some of her rhetoric. I mean, voters at this point you know, have rejected sort of some of the stuff you've done. And there's, there's a clear. No, I said, I'm not equating it. I'm not, I know, I'm not I know, equating I know. it. I'm, I, but, but I think. I'm I, saying, I, if you think that, if you think it's, it's like vote like democracy is at stake. If you think it's an issue that actually transcends politics, that you, that, that, that all Americans of good conscience should not vote for Republicans because the kind of, I don't know, the de facto leader of the party, Donald Trump, is somebody who will not accept the results of elections he loses. Then why would you, put millions of dollars into the campaigns of candidates during primaries that were election deniers. I, I think that's, I mean, you're dealing with a couple, a couple of different things in terms of decisions that folks, folks made in some of these races that I think the Peter Meyer district, of course, was sort of categorically different because, you know, there, there's an argument there, you want to reward Republicans for doing the right thing. But some of this is also, you know, if you believe that, you know, that some of them is, you know, the goal is to keep control of keep control of Congress. You know that at the end of the day, this is the argument. And I'm, I'm sort of advancing what the Democrat argument would be here. You know that Kevin McCarthy is an election denier. Do you want to do everything you can to keep an election denier from being uh, Speaker of the House? Um, is he an election denier? You voted against certifying the election. I'm, 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 right. I'm, I'm just I'm giving I'm giving you what the, what the argument is that this is. No, I understand. Jamie Raskin, by the way, has also voted in time. Voted to not certify the election in like what 2000 or 2016 or there's yeah, Democrats yeah, who do that yeah, too. Yeah, but yeah, but I think part of it, you know, you can talk about the qualitatively different that you know, doing it when you're you're not attempting to do that and you're waging a symbolic protest to sort of show you care about whatever issue is different than doing it, you know, eight hours after someone, you know, got shot. No, 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 that's a, that's a that's a totally fair point, and and it's it's wrong to equate the kind of election denialism of a Stacey Abrams or a Hillary Clinton with what yeah. Trump did and that there isn't a component of lunatics who stormed the Capitol. But that said, I, 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 I don't I, think, do you think that has the January 6th committee proven 
that there is a direct connection between Trump and the White House and like Oath Keepers or Proud Boys, who I think were armed when they came to Washington, although nobody seems to have been armed I mean, when they went to the Capitol. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there, there's, there's, you know, pretty explicitly saying, you know, Donald Trump calling up, calling up the Proud Boys and saying, yo, storm the Capitol. But in terms, you know, and I think, you know, but in terms of the legal stuff, that the legal stuff they were doing that sort of stoking this frivolous stuff in trying to create, sure. you know, that, that created the atmosphere for it. That, you know, if Donald Trump had been as responsible as Bolsonaro, none of this happens. I agree. Donald Trump's a menace. I'm not, I don't think anybody should vote for him. I'm not, I'm not, but, but. No, but I, I mean, this is a midterms. I mean, it's, it, we're fortunate that he's not on the ballot for the midterms. And I think that you can care about the, you know, fate of our republic and you can care about democracy and want divided government given the track record of the Democrats with control of the executive and the congressional branches of government in the last two years, which is to say that I, I care that, that, that I care a lot about elections. And I think Donald Trump's a real danger, but I also care about the department of Homeland security, uh, you know, putting together some disinformation board and working with social media companies to tell them what kind of posts they should allow and not allow. And that, this is apparently like it came out in this intercept piece recently, but that's an example of a kind of thing where I'm like, well, I don't think that's good for free speech or the constitution. And that's a power that has been abused before. And that the Democrats use this issue of disinformation basically as a way to kind of try to censor their political adversaries. I can, you know, so it's in my view, I, uh, I'm with you on the Trump criticism. I just don't, and I'm with, and I'm, I, I think it's, it's wrong to do that, but I don't think that that requires me to, to try to support the idea that the Democrats would hold the House and the Senate in the midterms. No, I, I think that's, that's, that's the challenge that Democrats are facing. There's the yeah. message is not, you know, not resonating that, that, that at this point, you know, that the Trump stuff, people feel very strongly about Donald Trump, but at this point, so much of that is priced in. Did you see Joe Biden's speech? I, I did not actually. I, I was, oh, really? No, I was. I was. You know, I, I get. This you're doing your. You're I, doing your job. You know, time to watch it. Okay. I mean, I want to kind of move on to something here because th there was a there was a George Will column. I don't know if you saw it. Did you see the George Will column? I I, I saw the tweets on it. Except I didn't read it through, but I'm, I'm okay. familiar with it. I call that an emperor has no clothes column because he's stating the obvious. Joe Biden, what? clear i mean he was not if, if he was vetted in a normal election he would not have won the nomination from the party he wouldn't have won the election because he's not all there i mean we've seen too many examples of this right ben i mean i i i don't know about that he's certainly older there but i think he you know i think he was pretty well vetted in the 2020 primary process that it sort of spoke to where democratic voters were on positions that, that, he know, campaigned from his basement because of COVID. That was during the general, the primary. I understand. And, and, and then in the primary. Okay. My point, though, is that I think his mental condition is a problem based on public remarks and things that I've seen from him. It's not like one example. I mean, I'm using there's a lot of that. And it is a little bit like John Fetterman. It's like, you know, I'm not a Mehmet Oz fan. I certainly think that Doug Mastriano should be nowhere near. He shouldn't be elected dog catcher. That guy shouldn't be the governor of Pennsylvania. But to pretend that this person was like pretty much normal, he's on the road to recovery. And then we see that debate with Fetterman. It reminds me a little bit of Joe Biden, which is that like when we see enough Joe Biden, it's like he's not all there. He's foggy. It's more than foggy. It's like he, he said at one point that he passed the legislation to give student loan, to, to cancel student loan debt when it was a matter, when it was a dubious matter of executive order. So at a certain point, it's like, I don't think I can give him the benefit of the doubt. It's just been too many of these kind of mental acuity problems of him speaking in public. I mean, and I don't know, I feel that that's part of our, you know, that's part of the transparency or information that voters would need. I mean, I, I wonder, like, were there people around Joe Biden in 2020 that maybe should have spoken up and say this guy really probably isn't 
ready to be president. I, I mean, I, I'd also point out that, you know, people change over, over years and it's, it's, it's a hard job. And I, that, you know, some of that stuff, you know, there's a question of how much is sort of malpropisms and sort of verbal stumblings, which, which is different than mental acuity. And that's something, you know, I certainly don't, don't have a clear sense of, but, but the thing is, did you see the one where he was, where he, he, he asked for the woman who died in the car crash, the congresswoman who died in the car crash, Hey, get up here and stand up. Did you see that one when he was speaking at an event? Yeah. Memorializing her. Well, but I think it was sort of, she was on legislation that she, that she had pushed for, I think it was a sign. I'm trying to remember what the exact detail was. It wasn't a memorial service. It wasn't, you know, he wasn't standing up there at a funeral. All right, fine. But it was like, not, not, not not ideal, but I think what's interesting, not ideal, but (laughs) (laughs) am I going to cost you? I'm not going to call. I don't want to cost you with Vox or New York magazine. I don't want to put you on the spot here, but come on. I'm, I'm look, look, I think there's obviously there's, there's, there's concerns with anyone, anyone that age. I, I also try to be, you know, getting a sense of that. I haven't covered Biden enough to have, have a clear sense of how much, you know, what exactly is going on, but obviously he's 80 years old or going, yeah, he is 80 years old. Like this is not, you know, that this is, you know, ideally you want, you want your, you know, your political leaders to, to be slightly, at least slightly younger than that. But I think the uh, other thing that's sort of looming over the fact. Careful with your ageism. I, I will, I will check my privilege there, but, but I think what the other sort of issue is that, you know, when you talk to Democrats about it, that there's no other alternative but Biden in 2024. I mean, there's no other alternative than Biden in 2024. Well, then Trump's going to probably be the president. That's terrible. Is that what Democrats are saying? No, I, I, I think the issue, I mean, Biden's beaten Trump once before. And, you know, if you're concerned about, and look, if, if you're concerned about a senior citizen who doesn't seem mentally together, you know. Like, yeah, I know. I, I'm not. Off the table. I'm, no, I'm, I'm just that, that, that the weaknesses cancel each other out there on, on this stuff that it's hard for either one to play those sorts of cards against the other. But there's, there's. I think the sense of who can be Trump, of who can appeal to to swing voters and sort of, you know, come across as sufficiently moderate, that there's sort of the question of what the alternative is and who the alternative is, you know, that there's a lot of skepticism about, you know, Kamala Harris as 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 a general election candidate. And that, you know, when you sort of work through the stuff that Biden, you know, I think there's a Saturday Night Live sketch on this, that Biden is, you know the the best of what's available, which which I think was the sense that folks took from 2020 that Biden was the best was the best candidate of the 20 folks people put out for the key task, which was beating Donald Trump. Okay, and in, in 2020 you can sort of see it because we weren't getting Biden every day, but I'm saying that there's a lot of there's a lot. I think there's got to be a lot of regret. He does not seem. I think it's more than just typical, you know, verbal stumbles and like malapropisms. I think it's much more than that. And I'm not, not diagnosing the guy. I'm just saying, I think if you just look at it and I think George Will's column was powerful because George Will was pointing out what everybody sort of sees. It's right in front of our face. This guy's, this guy's not there. He's not all there. It's like, you know, it's not like he's, not like he's lost his fastball, Ben. He's lost his changeup, his curveball, his slider, split fingered fast. He's lost it all lost his knuckleball anyway (laughs) sorry um all right let's move on and let's talk about bad republicans if you survey who's out there for say the big senate races especially the ones who are like in your view kind of scary illiberal types and versus who who are probably going to become or maybe morph into more moderate Republicans, you know what I'm saying? Or just traditional, I don't want to say moderate, but like somebody, there's a difference between like a, like a Republican who's just in the cult of Trump and MAGA and whatever Trump says is what they think versus, you know, what Tom Cotton or something like that. Follow me? I mean, you know, I, 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 I broadly follow your analogies. I'm, I'm working through, 
But I think, look, I think there's it's going to be very interesting with with some of these races, the question of who wins and who doesn't win that, you know, because there is sort of a key candidate quality issue that Republicans, you know, McConnell's talking about it, has run, you know, had some had some situations where they've nominated candidates who haven't been as strong as they could have been. That obviously Blake Masters is not a great candidate in Arizona. Herschel Walker has his issues in Georgia. Mehmet Oz has his issues in Pennsylvania. That they've nominated candidates who are sort of underperforming the top of the ticket. And you know, that and you see the difference there. You know, Adam Laxalt is a relatively generic Republican of this era, uh, but who's run before um, and who's in good shape in Nevada. Part of it is also being a candidate is is a skill in that you need to practice it instead of having this having uh a Senate campaign be your first first time at it. Uh, you're but I'm I'm, I'm not talking about I'm not talking about like I, I hear you about like their performance and like certainly there's a lot of liabilities with a Herschel Walker, like starting with his son. You know what I mean? He's a TikTok star, right? But I'm talking about like all right, let's say let's say they get through and the Republicans get you know 52 or whatever the real clear projection is. How many senators and how many of these House members, I mean, if you get specific, are like, can we distinguish between, like, let me, let me put my cards on the table. I think J.D. Vance has proven himself to be quite the contortionist, especially those of us kind of knew him in the days when he contributed to Forum Forum. Yeah. And was fairly like, conventional, like neocon type. But I also sort of think that, like, I don't know. I mean, is he really sincere in his new... NatCon national conservatism, or would he will he be willing to kind of go with the wind and you know be a fairly traditional Republican senator from Ohio? And even though he's running in a you know especially on the Ukraine issue, where I completely disagree with him as this new NatCon MAGA type. Yeah, I mean that's that's something where you know I traditionally the easiest way to trust what people will do in office is what they say when they're running. That's that that tends to be. You know, that's a question of, you know, when folks shift, was he ever sincere? Has he changed his mind? And, you know, just, I mean, obviously folks have, views of politics have changed, changed a lot of people have changed quite a bit over the past few years. Um, and you see sort of the, the moves that some folks have made. But I think what's actually interesting is the Senate, you know, there's, there's, is probably, there's some really, you know, folks who've engaged in out and outs of election denial, stuff like Don Bolduc in New Hampshire, who's probably going to lose, which is getting competitive. But but it's sort of looking at the House stuff, because that's where you have folks who are, you know, you have a lot more variance with House members, as, as you know, as you know, and you have folks popping up like Joe Kent, for example, in Washington, who's, you know, has ties to Dick Fuentes and various white nationalists. That where where you're going to sort of get a lot more extremes up the Senate, you know, then it's harder to be, you know, even even the you know even the more most extreme members of the Senate in both parties, you know, the most ideologically on the edges are still, you know, it's nothing compared to what you get with folks in the House, where you have far more ideological and intellectual diversity. And I think that's that's sort of the type of thing we're seeing members of the Times in the piece a couple of days ago who are getting elected to safe seats in the House. Right. That's 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 that I think is where 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 the shift where the shift is because you're gonna get more and more of your median members, you know, that at this point it's harder if you're running or you know, it's harder to run for office as a Republican unless you're fully, fully MAGA. You know, that you're going to get more and more of your median House members who are showing up to investigate Hunter Biden and try to write inflammatory tweets rather than legislate. And I think that's that's the trend on the right that's happening with the Senate obviously has its own constraints. But, you know, it's there's going to be some, you know, especially in some of these associates in some of these races, there's, there's going to be some real, you know, some, you know, a lot of people who are aspiring to be the next Marjorie Taylor Greene or the next Lauren Boebert. We're running for house that no one is, you know, at this point aspire, you know, that members are not necessarily aspiring to become an appropriations cardinal or committee chair. They want to become, you know, they want to become Twitter famous and get on TV a bunch. And that's a trend. I mean, there's obviously some of this, you know, happening on the left too, but that's a trend that's particularly amplified 
on on the right, though they're obviously members of both cha- both parties and both chambers who've been totally brain poisoned by Twitter. All right. Very, very diplomatic, very journalistic. And I appreciate where you're coming from. Okay. That's a good analysis. But let's get down to brass tacks. Do you feel that democracy is on the line in the midterms as the president and Democrats are now saying this is like their closing argument? You got to vote for the Democrats because if you vote for the Republicans, you know, we, we're not going to have a Republican left. Do you think that that's true? Do I think that that's true? Look, I think at this point, they're obviously candidates engaging in, in some, you know, particularly problematic rhetoric and veering into some conspiracy stuff, especially some of the folks running for elected, elected, you know, for election oversight offices, you know, which, which, right, which brings, which obviously creates create some challenges. And I think, you know, we're also in a place where things are far and far more polarized. I think you're right about the secretary of state. That's, that's right. Which is to say that if you elect somebody who is like a full on conspiracy theorist for MAGA, then you're, you're electing somebody who's supposed to be a neutral. You're electing, basically you're electing like, like a hard partisan in a job that's supposed to be for a neutral. Well, I mean, but just as yeah, but these right? I, I, it's not just that you know you, these are offices that are partisan offices, but it's but it's. I know. I mean, that's what I was going to say is that oftentimes, you know, we see that with redistricting. It's a, it's allegedly supposed to be a neutral process, but it's always I, I, it's done to the advantage I, of the party in power in the state. But the, but the analogy is is I, I've used for some of this stuff. It's it's like an umpire that umpires have different strike zones. You know, that, yeah. that and sort of how they're interpreting stuff, but you don't want someone who's there just to rig a thing for one team. I mean, you may have an umpire who's consistently calling low strikes. You may not like low strikes, but, you know, there, there's, there's, you know, say what you will, at least it's an ethos as opposed to, <laughs> folks, as opposed to folks who are just where it's, you know, like it's an entirely different, different process, an entirely different, you know, that they're concerned about. Dominion voting machines with, you know, Italian spy satellites, yada, yada, yada. Okay. Do you think that the journalists today sometimes are spending too much time focused on the ravings of lunatics online? Or maybe not enough. I mean, I'm, depends, depends, because, depends which, who, who's a lunatic online. I mean, what's your definition of a lunatic online? There's no, what I'm saying is that like, there's a lot of like crazy talk that you can find, especially if you, you know, if you, there's like a whole beat of like the misinformation yeah. beat or whatever. And, you know, there are politicians who are cynical who play into it. And there's some politicians who believe it, like Donald Trump, I think. And that's a real issue. But like, on the other hand, are, is there like an oxygen that's given to the crazies to a certain extent? Look, I think it's, I think there, there's a challenge there because obviously these, you know, fringe communities always get attention. I mean, the thing is that when you look at, for example, you know, like George Lincoln Rockwell, I think leading the American Nazi party with 400 people got on the cover of Life magazine in the 60s. I mean, part of it is like, point. that there, there's always some of that. I think the question is, the issue is how much these folks are sort of had influence merging together that at this point, you know, for two years in a row, a member, sitting members of Congress has spoken at a white nationalist conference. You who, know, who, who was it this year? Marjorie Taylor Greene, and then you had Paul Gosar the year before, and you've had, you know, yeah. speaking, you know, with, with the Nick Buntis stuff that I think part of it is sort of trying to be precise and figure out. Because- By the way, can I just, on the Nick Fuentes thing, how long have the white supremacists allowed Latinos in, in the fold? Has that been going on for a long time? I, I I don't know. I don't know what. I don't even. I'm, I'm not sure. His 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 his. Ancestor. He is a Latino. Fuentes is a is a Hispanic. He's Hispanic, but being Hispanic is not being Latino. Because because Hispanic because I mean I've, because it versus having you know family that came from Spain or Portugal as opposed to having family that came. Oh, from okay, America. all right. right. N- let me tell you something. The original lun- the, 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 and there's dirtbag scumbags. I'm, I'm, education I'm, I'm, has zero tolerance for the white supremacists, but 
the original white supremacists, they were interested in like, they had distinguished between the Alpine and Germanic peoples. They didn't like the Spanish or the Italians I, either. I, 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 you know, but, but, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, without, without getting into, you know, you know, white supremacists are white supremacists and, you know, what, what their definition yeah, of supremacy I agree. But, but yeah, yeah. But I, but I think it's a question of how this sort of fever swamp stuff is, is influencing people. And there's, look, there's fever swamp stuff on the left, on, on the left there, which has far less, far less influence. Like, you know, there's not, there are not, you know, a lot of really, it, it depends on how, where you want to define the line of fever. What fever swamp would you point to? I'm saying like, they're okay. Not all right. Here, here. Emerson. How about this? All right. Here's, here's how I would say is here's a far left idea that's gotten a lot of mainstream mm-hmm. uh, purchase in um, uh, uh, um, among liberals institutionally and so forth, right? There's an infinite number of genders. That's a, that's a, in my view, that's an extremist position and it's nonsensical. And it's basically like if, if you, if you say you believe in the gender binary until Last week, when Elon Musk became the chief twit, you you could you could maybe be kicked off of Twitter. So that's an example of extremism creeping into the mainstream on the left. Another example would be in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd at the hands of Derek Chauvin. The idea of decarceration was a somewhat mainstream idea for Democrats in the summer of 2020. And Kamala Harris, our current vice president, you know, she urged people to give money for bail funds for people who were arrested for like rioting and stuff. There was, you know, that so they, there were there were there have been spasms on both sides, I'd say, of extreme ideas finding their way into. Now, the difference is that the Republicans nominated for president a conspiracy theorist who it's not like he was being influenced by the fever swamps. He was the fever swamp. He lives in the fever swamp and then he, he won the nomination and became president. That's a difference because, you know, certainly Joe Biden, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, these are kind of establishment people who were not extremists. And that's, that is a huge difference. So I want to stipulate the leader of the factor leader of the Republican Party is an extremist who believes crazy conspiracy theories. But in, both sides have a problem with ex- radical extremist ideas creeping into the well, well, There's a difference between radical ideas and fever swamps i mean that's that's I'm, I'm just sort of differentiated because there are people like you know for you know for I'm, i when you're talking about fever swamps i was more explicitly thinking of you know jewish space lasers oh well and, okay and sure. you know the freemasons running things um that's sure that's i mean i think that that that's that sort of conspiratorial thinking and do you think do you think that david de Papa, who who attacked paul pelosi was he like activated by Republican rhetoric, as as Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden now are saying, I think. Look, I think that people are viewing this as an either or that either he's mentally ill or he's a MAGA person, glomming, you know, glomming onto stuff. And and there's there's elements of both there that he that the fever swamps. You know, when you think about, there's a pretty straight line in terms of you can sort of see the folks in Trump rallies of people getting sucked up by some of the Q stuff. For example, which is not ideological, but he's look, he's inherently a crazy person. Obviously, normal a sane person would not break into Nancy Pelosi's house at 2 a.m. in the morning to try to break her kneecaps with a hammer. Like there's a level obviously. Of, but there's but but it's sort of the type of stuff where this this sort of band of stuff is activating is activating sort of these sort of folks in the same way that sort of some of you know that this is what's there that is supposed to different leftish fever swamp, you know, conspiracy theories like something you get out of, you know, an Oliver Stone movie or something that, that might've been something that was there for people to glom onto in the past. That that I think it's a combination of things and viewing this as both, you know, that as, as we talked about when one party is promoting conspiracy theories more than the other, that, that leads to the conspiracy theorists to glom onto that. And, you know, that this is, that there's, there's, there's a relative, you know, Ben combination. No, I mean, this is, but this how, is, how about not giving crazy people a veto over a political rhetoric? And if you don't like the, the GOP's political rhetoric, and a lot of it, I don't like, just make the straightforward argument. This is bad, oh, I, but don't make it seem like, because 
you know, you have whatever, like, because people are saying that, because Nancy Pelosi deserves lots of legitimate no, criticism I, 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 for no, being there's, an out-of-touch elite there's, there's, who talks down to Americans and doesn't know what the hell she's but, doing and should oh, be out, you know what I mean? But but I'm, I'm, all I'm saying is that there's an intersection of stuff here that, that it's not, that this is not just, you know, this is not just sort of rhetoric or not just, I mean, the guy was sort of floating into all these conspiracy theory stuff. And that, that's what's in line with co- where conspiracy theorists. He thought fairies appeared to, to him in oh, the form of a bird. This is not, I'm, this is, this is the yeah. type of thing where No, like, no, I know. I'm just is, saying, like, is, I just don't, like, is, I just don't think there's any, yeah. like, I, I wouldn't blame, like, that crazy person who shot up Steve Scalise at the congressional baseball practice. Uh, yeah, yeah. But I, look, I don't blame I, that I, on, like, Hillary Clinton's crazy, I, I don't, or Rachel I, Maddow's, like, Russiagate. I, I, I don't think, I, I, yeah, I'm all, all I'm saying is that this all gets to be very complicated and having one, yeah. one exclusive thing that there can be, yeah, that there's multiple aspects of, of it going on. And part of the issue is that there's this demand and right now that, you know, there's there's what he said to police inter in you know in interrogation when he was in custody that that were coming up, but it's also like there's this need for us to have a very explicit answer on what this means for politics and how this pre- confirms the pre-existing theories right away. Yeah, okay. When, look, there's there's elements of a lot of stuff there, and like that's why there's a criminal justice episode and going through the legal process and what we have this statement there. But the need for everyone to look at events like this and have it pre-confirm, have it confirm everything they already believe is not ideal. That, you know, you've had... You can go from folks saying this is all about you know mental mental illness on the streets and drug use and yada yada. The people saying this is all about rhetoric. You can you know that you have you know you have enough you know enough moving enough stuff works. We don't need to shape every event that happens into the prism of our own pre-existing beliefs and sort of try to you know, let things develop, which matters more. All right. Well, we avoid on the re-education normally being like too like in the news cycle, but I'm going to, I can't, you know, we got to do it because it's right before the midterms. How many, what, what's the Senate going to look like? What's the house going to look like? Give me, give me your prediction. Um, As, by the way, Ben's been on the trail. He's been out there with the real voters. I mean, so. look, Republicans are going to pick up a bunch of seats in the house. I don't think anyone doubts Republicans will get the majority and I, It'll be, you know, look, and with the caveat that the polls could all be wrong because polling is not ideal yeah. these days, that, but Republicans will pick up a healthy majority enough. enough all right, but how many, how many Senate seats are they going to get, you think? At this point, at this point, I'm not to dodge again, I could see scenarios in which Republicans pick up at 52 seats i could see scenarios in which Dems have 51 that there's there's really a, oh okay all right so that's more of a toss-up that's 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 look that some of this stuff is with the polling error we've seen that what's interesting this year is also that there tends to be a little bit more regional variation than we've seen in the past in the past couple cycles right but obviously that you know stuff moves together and that if you know that if Blake Masters wins in Arizona. It means Adam Laxalt's winning in Nevada. But there, there's enough, you know, that sort of things will cycle together. And then you also have the caveat of the fact that Georgia could end up, you know, I talk to folks who see convincing cases for Warnock to win outright, for Walker to win outright, or for there to be a runoff. That the thing is that a lot of these elections are very close. There's the polling, you know, that there's sort of enough questions about the polling. With the House races, you can be a little bit more comfortable there. But look, at this point, the Senate, you know, that it's still, I mean, the two scenarios at the end of the day is whether Joe Manchin continues to be the most powerful man in the Senate or whether Susan Collins becomes the most powerful woman in the Senate. Uh, that's that's, a, yeah. That, that's still, you know, obviously a lot of stuff matters with committees and how folks move there because there's all sorts of possibilities for, for stuff to go in there. But the Senate is going to be relatively close. I mean, though, what's interesting when you talk to folks, one of the real concerns for the Democrats with the Senate is minimizing losses. You know, they, look, at this point, Democrats, you know, the success of the election, the loss of the election depends on, depends on the Senate. 
but there's already trepidation looking ahead to what the map looks like for Democrats in 2024, when there are going to be a lot of very vulnerable Democrats in what that in what that means, because you have Joe Manchin, West Virginia, you have John Tester, Montana, you have Sherrod Brown in Ohio, you have sort of all these folks in states who won re-election in 2018, which was a very good Democrat year in the midterm, shaping up, you know, shaping up for what's going to be a deeply, you know, bonkers presidential campaign that, you know, you'll have either, you know, you'll have you know, potentially it could be Biden, Trump too. It could be Trump versus a Democrat. It could be Biden versus a Republican. It could be totally open seat, but it's going to be what that looks like and what the political implications of that are. Mm. It's going to be a tough year. All right. Eli Lake's prediction, re-education listeners, is I think we're going to see a big blue wave on Tuesday. And here's why. I tweeted this earlier. The biggest number one issue for voters right now is inflation. The Democrats passed the Inflation Reduction Act. It's right there in the title. And add to that that the Republicans are doing absolutely nothing to court the National Archives voters after the Mar-a-Lago raid, and they have nothing to say about arms control. I think it's a bit blue year, so you can take that to the bank, Ben. I'd Big actually wave. Actually, no, there actually is a scenario for which Democrats know overperform and do better than expected that we should necessarily rule out either. Oh, come on. You can't have fun with me. I'm kidding, everybody. I know, I know you're kidding, but I'm just, I'm just pointing out that because of the education polarization that we've seen in which Democrats do better, the, you know, you're more, the more educated you are, the more likely you are to be a Democrat and vice versa. In which, you know, because the traditional argument for why, you know, there's some struggle for Democrats in midterms is Democrats appeal to, you know, poor voters, to less educated people who are less likely to be able to take time off, that some of that has actually flipped. And that's something we're seeing with, with, with polling uncertainty, too, is Democrats become a coalition of the college educated. That is all the, you know, what would it do middle class professionals who, you know, traditionally would have been viewed as a Republican base? Look, I'm not saying this is going to happen, but there is that, you know, it's not outside of the realm of possibility. It's not what I would bet money on. But if Democrats overperform on Tuesday, then it's going to be, you know, that Republicans, that a lot of the pe- voters Republicans were counting on didn't, didn't quite turn out. And there's some polling data on this. And look, we'll see. I just, just to offer the fact that there is a scenario in which Eli's blue wave could happen, I wouldn't, I wouldn't. Uh, Do you think that it helps or hurts when Kara Swisher, Swisher, and Rebecca Traster tell people, John Fetterman's fine. I spent all this time with him. He's totally cool. And then we see it all laid bare in that debate last week. And obviously, that's not wrong. If, I feel like there's a sort of mood in the country where they're sick and tired of the gaslighting. They're sick and tired of people telling them that, you know, it, 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 they're raining when they're pissing on their shoes. And there's like a sense where it's like, would you just be honest with me? Like, you know, President look, Biden is not there mentally. Look, look, I first of all point out the, the that if you're, you know, dealing, following Kara Swisher, Rebecca Twister in the first place, you, you're, you know, your vote is set and, you know, like you're not, okay. you're not a swing Fair voter. Enough. It's Granton, Pennsylvania. But the other thing that was, look, I mean, the debate is that these elections are becoming increasingly parliamentary, that at the end of the day, Look, voters voting for John Fetterman or for Mehmet Oz are not voting for someone there to give speeches. They're voting for someone to, you know, vote thumbs up or thumbs down, right along with their partying to be party line. Which you know that this is this is having you know the polling that's come out since the debate has shown that this hasn't had much of an impact. Which hold on, hold on, wait a second though. If that's the case, then be honest. Say John Fetterman had a horrible stroke. He can barely talk. Vote for him anyway, because at least he's going to support the no, Democrats. That, 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 no, that, that, which actually probably- They're not been. saying that. They're saying no, he's going to recover. But look, look, they're not saying that. Look, I think they, they've, part of it is that this is an issue that is not about Fetterman's health. This is about the issues with, you know, that they've, they've sort of, the story has changed a bit on his health condition throughout. And I think that's, that's the type of thing that folks- Assume that assume that that the health stuff matters. And look, I think we're also seeing a situation in which one of the reasons Fetterman, you know, is still ahead in polls is that 
just need that many people just don't particularly like Mehmet Oz. That if you look at the poll, well, that's certainly true. I mean, he's not a likable candidate. I agree with that. That that you know, it's a scenario in which David McCormick, who finished second to Oz in the primary, would likely be you know you, the general sense of folks would be beating Fetterman. But the counterpoint is that if it was Connor Lamb who finished uh, second to Fetterman in the primary against Mehmet Oz, that would be a much different margin too. The kind of the quality still matters, and you have candidates with some. Uh, you know, relatively, you know, both with, you know, both with flaws, and it's a question of how that plays with folks. And the other thing that's dragging out over all of this is the governor's race. Josh Shapiro well, is going to win. Yeah. You know, Mastriano has negative coattails, and you know, it's gonna that's certainly true. Out. And he deserves negative coattails because he's a he's a lunatic. Oh man, you know, I I can't believe yeah. you. No, 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 no. Mastriano is bad news bear. Nobody's defending Mastriano over here in the radio. On the radio I, I know. I was just trying. I was trying trying to set up and be. I'm not defending Mehmet Oz either. I think I the vote I, between. Uh, you know, I just think that like, you can't be serious about Betterman because I don't consider it to just be your job is to either thumbs up or thumbs down. The Senate's a deliberative body, and that like I just because I've covered politics in Washington for so long, I can't see it. He can't function as a senator because he, I mean, unless, and I'm not, a, I mean, listen, I was willing to say like, okay, maybe he'll get better. I hope he does get better. Everybody hopes he gets better. It's a terrible thing to have a stroke. It's not the point, but if it, it's six months now, it doesn't look like if this is, if this is as good as it's going to get, he can't be a senator, what we saw on that debate stage. Look, I, 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 there, there was a line from someone on Fetterman's campaign, I think, sometime in the late summer arguing that he's still in better shape than than i think something like four fifths of the senate which obviously is is, is an exaggeration but you know no but that's like what i'm talking about that's that's the resentment that's the that's the oh, gaslighting yeah. I, well, he seems well, like that's the, but it, i'm saying it's a problem with the democrats who have taken this weird position where they're like going to protect us from disinformation and they're obsessed with the disinformation issue and they're so upset that elon Musk took over twitter because it's going to allow all these disinformation merchants, the riffraff, in the, in the, in, and yet they themselves, surprise, surprise, engage in disinformation, misinformation, oh, all number of things. Chris, and that's what's frustrating. It's like at least, the, yeah, the Republicans will snow you 100%, but they're not out there trying to claim that they're trying to protect the rest of the country from other con artists, where that's what the Democrats are like, hey, vote for us because we're trying to keep, keep you safe from all the lies. And then, them, you know, they're just as, you know, they're just as dishonest. I, I mean, the they political parties and politicians and political operatives, you know. No, yeah, not, okay, I want a third party. I'm, I'm sick of both of them at this point. You know? Like, we need a third party. I don't know. The, like, this the, is a good place to end party? it. Sure, that's a little too close to the, you know, Pol Pot or something, but yeah, maybe. We'll see. Well, ben, it's a real pleasure for taking time out of your busy schedule. Go read him. Read. I, we didn't even talk about your really good piece for New York about you know, Kevin McCarthy, that yeah. was a fascinating read. So I'm sorry I we, we didn't we ran out of time on that, but I tell everybody to read it from New York Magazine. Ben's a great journalist. Follow him on Twitter, Ben C. Jacobs. Yeah. Everything okay on the trail? Everything's, everything's, yeah, as look, everything's delightful, especially now that I don't have to edit you anymore. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm a dream. <laughs> I'm a dream. Dennis. Anyway, thank you very much, Ben. I really appreciate it. Thanks, buddy. This has been The Re-Education with Eli Lake, a nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcasts. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing.